Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Buery, and as always, I'm with earthquake scenario creator, Dr. Lucy Jones. This podcast is made possible by small donations from individuals just like you. Would you consider sponsoring too? Because with your support, we can continue to provide this weekly insight and support for you. It's simple. Just go to patreon.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And now let's get to it. This is our fourth and final part of our series tackling earthquake prediction. And as we've gone through this topic, it's become more and more clear that there are aspects of earthquakes that can be predicted. Lucy, you talk about rates, meaning more earthquakes are likely. And we have early warning that lets us know what's coming once it started. It's not just what we want, though, for prediction, which is the date, the time, the location, the size. That's what we're looking for. you got to remember that the process of science actually is prediction. We make a model from our understanding of the physical world, and we make predictions that we test to see whether or not our models are correct. So it's fundamental what we're doing. And we predict many things about earthquakes. So so when you ask for time, place, and magnitude, we can give you two out of three. We can tell you where. We can tell you how big, but just not when. And it's because it's the uncertainty of when that scares us about earthquakes. Predicting the rest of it feels inadequate. The lack of time sometimes feels like a failure. And maybe that's why we always say that earthquake prediction is impossible because just about everybody wants the time and that is impossible right now. But there's a lot that can be predicted even beyond place and magnitude. Remember though, that all the things that we can predict come from knowing location and magnitude. Of course, magnitude is knowing how long a piece of fault is moving. So let's go down this path of what we can predict and let's use a specific fault or earthquake and I'll say what's going to happen. So John, go pick a non-San Andreas earthquake. Which one do you want me to do? Okay. I mean, the one that I love to talk about the most and is probably the nearest to me where I live is probably the Hollywood fault. Yeah, that one's too easy. <laughs> they wipe out all the old buildings of Hollywood, and, you know. So a, non, a hard one. Okay, I get it. Okay, so <laughs> the other one that sort of comes to mind that's sort of significant is the Newport Inglewood Fault. Okay, yeah, that's actually a rather more interesting one because it runs down sort of pretty close to the path of the San Diego, the 405 freeway. And so we know quite a bit about what exactly will be broken. Okay, so let's look at that one. Let's start with size and location. Where is this earthquake going to be and how big? I mean, you said near the 405, but really, I mean, what comes to mind to me is that I feel like you've always told me that it ends in Beverly Hills or something like that, right? That's right. The northern end of the Newport Inglewood Fault is in Beverly Hills, very near uh, Beverly Hills High School. And from there, it runs to the southwest and it gets down to Long Beach, which is where the 1933 earthquake happened. We think it actually keeps on going farther south than that. So we have to pick a section of it. You know, sometimes people talk about the whole length of it down to San Diego. Let's not do that. Let's say the 33 earthquake broke a certain segment of the fault. We'll take everything north of the 33 earthquake till the northern end. So that's Long Beach to Beverly Hills. And the fault will run somewhere relatively close to the 405 freeway. So how big would that be? We know that magnitude is the size. How long is that? 
Okay, so that length of fault is something close to 20 miles, Long Beach to, to Beverly Hills. It's usually talked about about six and a half, you know, somewhere between six and a half to 6.8. A Northridge earthquake-sized earthquake. Yeah, basically it's Northridge spread out a little bit. Northridge was interesting because it was very intense and compact. This would be a little bit longer fault for the same release of energy, slightly larger area, larger time. So that is a pretty large area. I mean, we're talking basically cutting across southwest Los Angeles County, right in the central area of the sit of the county, but the entire length. What's the damage going to look like? Okay, so there's three big things that go into what the damage will be. One of them is the direct earthquake shaking, and one of them is the fault offset. So the fault's actually going to move, and everything that crosses it moves with it. And there's some very substantial damage that happens that way. And then the third thing is liquefaction. When we shake the ground a lot, the ground itself can start to fail, and it's a big issue if there's a high water table that allows it to flow away. So we've got these three things, shaking, fault offset, and liquefaction. And I think everyone expects you to know what the earthquake does, but how can you actually predict damage? What, what gets you to believe that, that just knowing that can help us know what's going to actually happen to our built environment? All right, let's go through them. Let's start with fault offset. The, the western side is going to move to the northwest. The eastern side is going to move to the southeast. And it's going to be a distance about 10 feet. That's the sort of offsets, 5 to 10 feet that we would see in this size earthquake. And let me let me clarify here. This is uh, with regard to the other side. It's not opening up. There's if the, if the earth opened up, there would be no earthquake. And so this isn't a gaping hole for 5 to 10 feet, but rather one side moving past the other for about 5 to 10 feet. Right. This is a strike-slip fault, so one side's moving horizontally. So let's imagine we have a freeway crossing the fault. One side moves five feet. We now have the lane offset by five feet. And if that's you know suspended up above the ground, you've now broken it apart. You, you can't drive over it. Now let's look at what freeways those are. It's the Long Beach Freeway, the 710, the Santa Monica Freeway, the Artesia Freeway, the Century Freeway, the Harbor Freeway and the San Diego Freeway. So we have six of our major freeways that cross the Newport Inglewood Fault within this length and will be unpassable. There will be no freeways usable. We also have Metro lines that cross the fault. So the Expo line, the Long Beach line and the Green line are all going to be broken and, and unusable. So we won't be moving anywhere when this happens. Of course, there are also buried pipelines in the area that will be offset as the fault moves, and then we'll have gas releases, we will have sewage releases, we will, you know, there will be a lot of things that are broken up and a lot of fires that start along the fault because you've got all these broken gas lines going in through here. So, and that's just the fault offset, and that doesn't include the buildings that we've built along the fault because until 1971, there was no rule that said you couldn't build on top of a fault. Right. So anything that was earlier, we, we have houses, we have schools that are very near the fault and anything that crosses it will absolutely be broken. That's the one piece of earthquake damage you can't prevent. Nobody's stopping the fault from moving. And the silver lining, if you can find one there, is that it's confined to those 20 miles at that very specific location. Fault offset doesn't happen anywhere but where the fault is. Right. That's a lot right there. Let's move from that prediction to the damage that happens with liquefaction. What's going to happen because of that? 
this is a little harder to predict because it's a combination of having soils that are the type that can, can deform and a high water table that allows them to act like quicksand when it happens. Now, the California Geological Survey has maps that show exactly where liquefaction is likely, and it's basically wherever you used to have streams. So along Bayona Creek, along the LA River, both of those are places that have loose soils. If we have a high enough water table, we'll have problems. Also, right along the coast. So in 1994, Redondo Beach had liquefaction from the Northridge earthquake. And we, you know, depending on where the water table is, we will see a lot of this. And, and liquefaction is the land acting like a liquid. Build, you know, quicksand doesn't do a good job of holding up buildings. Well, we're talking about sort of ground deformation, as you called this. There's also the idea that perhaps, and, and I'm thinking specifically of the bluffs in Westchester over uh, Bayona Creek area, you have these bluffs. What about landslides? I know that when we talk about uh, earthquakes in areas of hillsides, you get landslides. And, you know, the San Andreas earthquake, we know will have landslides. Would the Newport Inglewood produce landslides in either the, the bluffs there or even the Hollywood Hills, the Santa Monica Mountains, uh, based on where it's, it's moving? Okay, of these, probably the Westchester Bluffs are the most likely because they are the youngest, least consolidated type of rock. They're, they're relatively young river sediments that have been gradually uplifted. So I could imagine slumping along the sides of those, potentially also some shaking in the Hollywood Hills. That one's a little more debatable, and then you have to figure out where the landslide problems are. I would expect some landslides, but not universal across the Hollywood Hills. So let's go back and talk about shaking, because that's going to affect the entire region, not just LA County. When this earthquake happens, people from Ventura to Orange County and beyond will feel the shaking, but the damage will be not just where the fault offset is, not just where the liquefaction is, but where the shaking is intense enough to make damage happen. Right. So it's going to be felt over all of Southern California. San Diego will feel this strongly. You know, the same size earthquake or close to it, the Loma Prieta earthquake in, in the Bay Area in 1989 was felt in Los Angeles. So it'll be felt over a huge area, but the primary damage, the really intense damage will be where it's intensity nine. Remember we've talked before about intensity, describing what the shaking is. Intensity nine was what we saw in the Northwest Valley in, in 1994. It's where the Northridge Meadows apartments collapsed. It's where the Olive Hospital collapsed in 71. So it's the, the worst damage that really gets our sort of ordinary type of buildings. The problem with this earthquake is we'll see intensity nine shaking pretty much everywhere west of the Harbor Freeway and south of the Santa Monica Mountains down to, down to Long Beach. So there's a, a large number of people, that's probably half of the city of Los Angeles, all of Santa Monica, all of Culver City. There's a lot of people that are going to be receiving the shaking. And then we know the types of buildings that are gonna be badly damaged. Exactly whether each building, I can't go to one building and say, this will fall down, this one won't. But I can go and say, buildings built of concrete before 1980 that haven't been retrofitted the majority will be badly enough damaged in this area to not be usable. And some percentage of them are going to collapse and that's where most of the deaths are gonna happen. So we know which types of buildings. Luckily, 
The city of Los Angeles and the city of Santa Monica are forcing retrofit of those buildings and of the soft first story, the Northridge Meadows Apartments type buildings. And because of that retrofitting, we are going to substantially reduce the number of buildings that collapse, the number of people that are killed, and the number of people who lose their homes. Because all of those are consequences of damaging the buildings. How many people would be injured or die in this earthquake, Lucy? That one's actually the hardest thing to predict because it depends a lot upon the time of day. If it's two in the morning and almost all of us are home in bed, fewer people will die than if it's two in the afternoon and we're on the freeways, we're in these commercial buildings, which are often the, the bad ones. But the estimates for this are greater or at least as equal to the San Andreas earthquake. So we're talking probably one, 2,000 people could be dying in this event, depending upon time of day. And the number of injuries is, is going to be substantially larger than that, enough to overwhelm all of our emergency rooms, maybe in the order of 50,000. And if that's not sobering enough, do we have an understanding of what fires might be started or economic losses? We don't have a really accurate answer. We haven't done a specific model for this specific earthquake, but when we've done it for other earthquakes, we often see the fire losses being comparable to the direct shaking losses. And there are enough pipelines in this area, especially think of the refineries down in the South Bay, the pipelines that run out of those, you get a break. You know, some of these big pipelines cross the Newport Inglewood Fault. They break, they start burning. You're going to have an infinite supply of fuel that will keep it going. So my guess would be the fires will be at least the direct shaking losses. And we are going to struggle to fight them because we will also be having damage to our water systems. Now, business interruption, this is an interesting one. Every time we've modeled any disaster, we end up with the business disruption after the event being comparable to the total losses suffered in the event itself. So our ability to recover and how quickly we can get our infrastructure back and our businesses back up and functioning are going to determine a lot of what the losses are. The good news is, is that is to some extent in our control. We can decide to invest in infrastructure repairs and we can decide to invest time and energy in each other. So we're ready to help each other afterwards. Okay, Lucy, as we record this, uh, we've never had this conversation about the Newport Inglewood fault before. In fact, I know that prior to this podcast, you and I had many times talked about the San Andreas. We'd co-presented presentations on the impacts. We've never actually talked about what the damage might be for the Newport Inglewood fault. How do you know all this? How do you <laughs> off the top of your head be able to come up with these answers and figures so quickly? Okay. Well, I've developed scenarios. And one aspect of that is you start seeing what are the parts that are common to it, right? I, I'm not trying to say exact numbers because that's going to depend on more detailed modeling than we have. There have been models of the Newport Inglewood Fault. Uh, you know, the California Geological Survey has created basic scenarios using a, a set of software called Hazus for quite a few earthquakes around California. And then you can start seeing the commonalities because, you know, we understand earthquakes. We know how they move. We know the shaking they're going to produce. We know the buildings that are sitting in the way. So we really do know what goes on an earthquake. We just don't know when. So knowing that, how should our listeners use this information? 
Now they have the ideas that there is going to be a damaging earthquake headed their way at an unknown time. What do they do with this information? Okay. So we've told you there's going to be an earthquake on New Pringlewood Fault. There's also going to be one on the Hollywood Fault. There's going to be one on the Malibu Fault. There's going to be one on the Santa Monica Fault. There's going to be one on the Palos Verdes Fault. You start recognizing these names. Wherever you live in Southern California, you've got a fault nearby. And we don't know when. It might be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now. We don't know when any quake will happen. But we do know what. And we know that you are in control of much of that what, right? We know which buildings are vulnerable. Have you had your building retrofitted? Have you supported that going on within your community? Have you secured your space? A third of the damage happens from things being thrown around. What are you gonna lose because it's not secured? Um, Have you supported uh, uh, investment? Did you support investment and water system improvements in your community? All of these are things that could be done to reduce the losses. Some you control directly, some you can get your representatives to vote on. And all of those are great strategies to reduce losses and prevent damage. And the other piece of knowing that an earthquake is in your future, even if you don't know when, is to take time now to connect with your neighbors, right? That's the work that we do. That connecting with those physically closest to you will help when the earthquake does happen. They're the ones who are going to be there that you can count on immediately after. They'll help you get through it. I can do the science. That's only a little piece of it. What you talk about, communities coming together, that's how we're actually going to be getting through this because we all are in this together, as we keep on saying. That's right, Lucy. This series on earthquake prediction, this is the fourth in our four-part series, should help our listeners know what to believe and what not to when they hear that an earthquake is coming. From rates that make earthquakes more likely in the immediate future to early warning, which tells you shaking is headed your way. And even today, as we predict likely damage, there's value in knowing what's likely to happen or not. And though we could have easily spent this time looking at and debunking the countless earthquake predictions that are shared online each year, we'd rather empower you to know how to reject the bogus predictions that you might hear. So until next time, I'm John Bwery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a sponsor at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones.